Oh, hey, welcome to The Look Back with me, your host, Keith Newman, former journalist and media guy and go-to-market consultant in the Valley for the past few decades. Here we have candid conversations with newsmakers and rule breakers, the innovators, entrepreneurs, and influencers who share their past contributions along with current insights in a casual yet candid conversation. This lightly edited passion project of mine is a pay it forward contribution to the next wave of innovators and entrepreneurs. I sure hope you enjoy the program and feel free to share it with anyone who might enjoy it. Now, onto the show. Mitch, you and I go back to my CRN days, but I was a West Coast guy when you were an East Coast, East guy. Coast guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you had a lot of fans out there in the New York to Boston uh, uh, corridor. Yes, I was fortunate. It just not, not planned, but th that there was sort of fallout of uh, the success with the with Lotus One Two Three. So yeah, and that's kind of where I want to start. First of all, welcome to the look back. I have Mitch Kapoor, the um, the founder of Lotus Development Corp, from uh, the early days in the PC era where. He turned a, um, a, a product called Lotus One Two Three into a pretty much a noun, a verb, an adjective, <laughs> and everything. Just one of the hottest products of that PC era. And I, I'm anxious to get into what you're working on now, writ large. But um, I, I just thought I would start since we are called the Look Back, Mitch. To kind of what what are your thoughts when you look back on your your Lotus uh, days? What are the things that kind of stick out um, the most to you in terms of those memories? Well, simultaneously, how much things have changed and how little. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's really been 40 years. And that is, of course, like a millennium in <laughs> normal time, yeah. given pace of change of technology. And so... Um, the kind of excitement of doing a startup where you don't know how it's going to turn out. You have this idea. You think you're making something that people are going to want to use. And then unexpectedly, it turns into this mega hit. And we built a whole company around it. Uh, and, and it really changed part of the world. Uh, I mean, there's nothing like that uh, feeling. But there is also the part of it, memorable part, which was once it became highly successful, and this is a company that went from zero to 50 million in revenue in its first year, and multiply that by about three to make up for, you know, inflation. So zero yeah. to 150 million in today, and then, you know, and onward from there, it was all for a first time entrepreneur overwhelming. And I was just <laughs> terrified about you know, could we keep it up? Would I make a bad call and everything would evaporate as quickly as it all, uh, you know, came together? So the, the aftermath of it was, you know, was very challenging. So those are memorable parts. Um, that whole process of going from zero to one of something and launching it and, and seeing how it does, and that's still central to the tech ecosystem today and when we invest in in entrepreneurs we're you know in some sense looking for the next big thing we have a specific definition of 
what we mean by next big thing in terms of its uh, gap closing impact, which I hope we'll get to. But to say just a word about what's different, the scale at which everything operates is three, four, five, six orders of magnitude, bigger, faster. I mean, because, you know, how many billions of smartphones are there in the world? Basically one per person. And so the playing field is bigger. The stakes are bigger. The competition is tougher. The opportunities are greater. It's the difference between operating you know, out on the frontier in some sort of tiny, you know, little village versus operating in the big city. And so that's hard, as it is hard for us who live with, you know, indoor plumbing and electricity to even imagine what it was like to live when that was not the case. Yeah. We'd say it's so different now what what uh, what startups are like from what we were doing in in a number of regards like that. Yeah. So that's really interesting to me. The other piece is the experience that you had back then in terms of building and scaling and ramping and developing a product and staying ahead of the competition, replacing one, fighting off the others, building those distribution channels that kind of have been washed out a little bit, but still the idea of bringing a product to market and having that impact. What was the one or two lessons you you take with you as you continue to uh, mentor and counsel your portfolio companies? Well, there are a few things. We paid very specific attention to the circumstances of that time in designing a solution. This is just not the product itself, but also our go-to-market. I'll give an example in a sec. That tried to leap forward a generation over the competition, do things that nobody had done before. So in our case back then, we developed this new spreadsheet. Um, We needed to train the dealers who were selling it because in those days, as you and I know, but not everyone in our audience does, computers were sold through retail computer stores, business land, computer land, Sears, and so on, where you would actually go. I mean, it was like everything was an Apple store, okay? (laughs) And nothing was online. Uh, But nobody knew anything because PCs were all new and nobody had them. And so we needed to train and support the dealers. We needed, we did one of the first self-executing demo disks. So people could load, these were all five and a quarter inch floppy disks, something, and basically play a movie, except it wasn't a movie, it was like animated screenshots that showed what the thing could do. And so we, we invested a lot in lowering the barriers to people actually making a purchase. Because basically people were spending $5,000 to buy a fully loaded IBM personal computer in order to buy the Lotus 123 spreadsheet, which was $495. And um, that all uh, proved to be very successful. We, We also took out full page ads in the Wall Street Journal uh, and Business Week, not not trade publications, because we said our users are business users; they're not computer professionals. They read the Wall Street Journal, and I think we were the first, or just about the first, software company ever to do that—to take out full-page ads for software. So, 
the point is today, the, I mean, these are all quaint stories from the past. There are a different set of specific circumstances, and depending on which sector you're in, if you're in fintech or edtech, and taking note of those and understanding them and understanding where the gaps are and where the leap forward is and how you actually, you know, and, and now fortunately, so much work has been done on the techniques of customer development and all the, everything coming out of the lean startup movement. Back in the day, we were inventing all this because nobody had done it before. Now there are, you know, we were cutting paths in the wilderness. Now, I think you muted. Uh, now there are, you know, some well-traveled highways that you can go down and how to do this in general. Yeah, it's like we're we we built the yeah. the bridges, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah. people have a chance to now drive on them, but uh, right. in different different directions. Yeah. Hey, so yeah. I don't want to make you stick into the uh, yesteryear for the whole chat. You obviously had a great exit with Lotus back in the day, although I'm sure you remember it as a hectic and crazy time, yeah. uh, the whole IBM thing. But you then went over to do Electronic Frontier. And Mozilla. Now, I, I think part of it was board member, advisor, investor kinds of roles. But what was that? Uh, what was that like? What was the learning or impetus of that? So briefly, Lotus was the early 1980s. I left in the late 1980s. Sold to IBM, right? IBM sale was later, 95. I was okay. on for a number of years because the, I, IBM bought the company not for the spreadsheet, but for Lotus Notes which uh, yes, yes. was a $3, three sure. billion dollar, uh, sure. acquisition. Lotus Notes started under my tenure, but it didn't actually come to market until Microsoft Windows matured and I mean, much later. And then I, IBM bought it. So I was you know, wanting to be a serial entrepreneur at a time when the term hadn't been invented yet. I was ready to start uh, the next thing and saw the potential of the internet Going back to 1990, just to calibrate, Netscape, the first you know commercial graphical browser, that was like 95, uh, and so Web 1.0, you know Pets.com and all that, that was like 95 to, to 2000. So 1990, just the transition of the internet from being this research, defense department, academic network that nobody was paying attention to, to something that began to let ordinary folks on. And, um, and nobody was taking the internet seriously. This is 90, 91 uh, in the commercial world whatsoever or in DC, but we were building it. And I, I thought it had enormous democratizing potential, a network that anybody could join and communicate with anybody else because there was nothing else like that at the time. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So I was just feeling my way through it and it became clear it was the Wild West, uh, unregulated, and yep. <laughs> there was a bunch of hacking going on of people, mostly kids, just kind of seeing what they could do. And there's no real security and people or weak security breaking into systems. And, and much of it was like teenage vandalism. It was like people tagging with graffiti. It was still, there was no economics. There was nothing to steal. So no real criminals on it. But 
Nonetheless, there were things that were over the line, but the government, which did not understand this at all at that point, nobody did, was treating minor offenses like major ones, lock them up, throw away the key felonies. It was just an enormous overreach to anybody, really. And, yeah. and not it, out of bad intention, but... The more things change, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so Electro EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, myself and yeah. the late and much missed John Perry Barlow. Sure. And, and John Gilmore um, created an organization that really said, look, as far as the U.S. is concerned, the Bill of Rights does not stop at the edge of cyberspace. We have to be thinking about the meaning of freedom of speech and privacy and freedom from unreasonable search and seizure and all the protections we have as citizens as they apply to networks. And, you know, nobody was asking that question because it was day one. Yeah. It was like, you know, yeah. like, 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 you know, 12 22 a.m. on day one of the internet era. But um, it struck a chord. And, you know, EFF has, well, had ups and downs, uh, in, especially in the early years, is now a kind of senior institution in the internet world of, you know, protecting, protecting rights, speech and privacy and, you know, counterbalancing both government overreach and corporate overreach. So I'm quite proud of having started that and seen it through its its early days. And right. Mozilla, I had a very supporting role. I was the founding chair. I yeah. helped get it extracted out of Netscape and into a foundation and funded. And I helped set up the structure of Mozilla Corp within the foundation. So there's a way of bringing money into it. But it was a, a, an important but delimited role back, back at the beginning. But where do you see it today? Mozilla still 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 there still yeah. doing a lot of interesting things it does yeah. not have the browser market share that right. it used to have talk, um, about, talk about competition and, yeah, uh, yeah yeah we won't get into some regulation very in, an important uh player in the internet in in building things and it's gone you know far beyond the browser uh itself so okay well that's fantastic it's interesting so then Mitch, you, you decide, okay, um, you know, I'm going to go launch this thing called the Kapoor Center, I think with your wife, um, and 12 years now and going strong. I don't know how many people are familiar with the Kapoor Center in my audience here, or whoever's going to listen to this, but it's a phenomenal story based in Oakland, California. It's the center um, with a mission to ensure an inclusive and equitable technology center. And um, as somebody who lives out here, Mitch, um, in the Valley, um, one of the one of one of your groups, the uh, the VC arm Kapoor Capital, I believe, has put in a hundred million dollars or so in about one hundred and seventy startups um, in your portfolio. And the 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 kicker to that is, I think sixty two percent of the funds go to underrepresented founders, which is has been a ballyhooed topic for about 12 years or or five years after you started this um, project and we're still you know grappling with how to create that balance in that in that challenge in that mission but I'm I want to start with how did you get there what make what was that pivot like sure. from 
from I'm trying to map Lotus to EFF to Mozilla to a bunch of million things you were doing. Were you doing some angel investing and said, I want to see this at a bigger scale? Or did you notice the under representation and that became your lightning rod or what was the impetus there? So fair, very fair question. And uh, a couple of things. So first, I had been doing angel investing since Lotus all along, sometimes more intensely, sometimes less, but did very well in the 90s uh, in, in UUNet and then Real Networks, two internet pioneer companies came in as first investor. I love, the, I love the nostalgic names that I haven't thought about in a dozen years too. So keep them coming. Right. So <laughs> Frida, my wife, Frida Kapor Klein, uh, was a huge influence in me and us really getting to the next level and, and doing what we do uh, at the Kapor Center and, and, and with Kapor Capital. And it worked something like this. She came to work at Lotus in the 80s, long before we were a couple, um, which that didn't happen until the 90s in a separate chapter. In the 80s, she was hired to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the US. I didn't wanna send a rocket ship to Mars as a successful founder. I wanted to make a place where misfits like me would feel included. And that was her job and we did lots of great things together and we're, we're close professional colleagues. After we got together as a couple in the mid nineties. Oh, and Frida's background has been as a social justice activist forever. She co-founded the first group in the US on sexual harassment in the 1970s uh, and um, had a uh, post Lotus, a consulting practice uh, dealing with issues of bias, harassment, and discrimination in the in the corporate world. Her influence and her work world and mine began to come together in the late 90s. And specifically, she started nudging me. She said, Mitch, I know what your values are. Have you thought about making your angel investments in a way that's really aligned with your with your values? And my first reaction was, I could do that, but wouldn't I miss out on all the hot deals? We had lots of discussions. Oh, you're muted again. We you, had, you, you spoke the words that most people probably yeah, think. About. Yeah, but we had lots of discussions about this. And it was true that I really have always cared about um, way more than just making money in business. I cared about great products, but I wanted the stuff that we did to benefit people. And she gave me a framework to understand that we could perhaps invest in tech startups that helped, as we put it, close gaps gaps of access or of opportunity or of outcome for uh, underrepresented groups, low-income communities, communities of color, and so on. So we take central note of the fact that uh, the playing field is incredibly uneven and that we have enormous gap, wealth inequality and income inequality and 
inequality in access to healthcare and education and the basics. And so she posed this as a question, could we have an investment strategy that would be centered around high growth tech startups that could help close those gaps? Could we use that as an investment criteria? Would those companies do well? Could we find them? Were there any? <laughs> and, and that was the, the, the genesis of Cape Work Capital a dozen or so years ago was as an experiment along those lines. And what we found was indeed um, we could not only do that, but we could produce investment returns that were comparable. In fact, what we call top quartile compared with all venture funds of our size. We did an impact report first in 2019 covering the first seven years uh, uh, of work. And we've updated it since with all the, all the numbers, we put it on the web and it, it was striking, if not maybe a bit revolutionary because the conventional assumption in the venture world was if you do anything other than just focus on investing for maximum returns, you're gonna be compromising those returns. It's what's called concessionary investing. And we showed with that big portfolio, that is just not the case. So it's been, so let me pause there, but that's that's the story of how this kind of happened and what we've been doing in in summary. So rather than dig into the meaty topics of what areas are you interested in investing in and how you evaluate your investments, how are we doing on the goal, the mission of the the diversity and the balance within um, the market? And you can expand this beyond um, Kapoor. You could expand it to, you know, U.S.-based or however you want to look at it. So let me, let me say two things first. Yes, Um, a an extremely high percentage of the startups we invested in are founded by underrepresented groups, people of color, women of all groups, 60, 70 percent, depending on what time frame you're, um, you know, you're, you're looking at. And, and it's actually gone up. Um, our criterion, though, isn't and has never been the demographics of the founder. What matters to us is the impact of the business, the outcome. We ask, if this business succeeds, who will be better off? Is it going to bring the top and bottom closer together, or is it going to widen gaps? Does this something, if it just benefits the already affluent, uh, as a lot of ed tech startups do for very expensive products that give, you know, try to give kids a further edge in competitive college admissions, we look at that as gap widening, not gap closing. So, uh, you know, a significant uh, portion of the founders we invest in are, uh, they cover the entire, you know, span of groups. Why you might ask are, do we have such a high proportion of uh, underrepresented groups? And some of it has to do with two concepts we call lived experience, and distance traveled. And let me start with the latter. Um, Sometimes investors in in looking at a startup, they wanna know, well, did you go to Stanford? 
<laughs> you're a computer science, you know, and, and so on. We don't think that that is the central criterion at all. We are interested in where people came from, where they started, and what barriers they have already overcome on their own. Uh, how far have, have they gotten? That's their distance traveled, because that is a good proxy for things like persistence, resilience, grit, creativity, problem solving. And when you do that, you wind up um, evaluating talent very, very, very differently. Uh, and love it. I often, love it. you know, they say entrepreneurs scratch their own itch. So when we're interested in companies that close gaps, gaps of access or opportunity. People who have experienced that themselves or seen it in their family or community and where that's been a formative experience, that lived experience, they're the ones that are gonna come up with the great idea about how to improve educational outcomes in some sector, uh, for instance, or how to, you know, provide economic empowerment to people with low credit scores because they went through that, their family went through that, they feel it, it's a, something burning inside them. So I would you know, tell you that the diversity in the portfolio, which you know, is a result of, of all of those factors and not of an anything like a quota system or this is who we want to invest in. So, and I have to say people still, fail to understand that. And it's it's particularly important uh, at this time when there's so much pushback about DEI in the world. Yeah, we 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 do have to face that. It's uh it's a yeah. it's a head scratcher and almost two alternative realities out there yeah. in the world. Yeah. If not three. Yeah. If not three. Yeah. Um I could dig in more there, but I think you've said enough. Unless you had any additional thoughts in terms of are we getting closer? Are we going backwards? Do you have any recommendations for, for more um, proactive and positive steps for you know, our industry? So I think progress is sometimes usually far slower than we would like. Yes. And we have to recognize sometimes there's retrograde motion. We are you know, it's two steps forward, one step back. And we're definitely in a one step back uh, uh, moment right now. But I, you know, think we have to keep in mind the big picture that yeah. the struggle to build a world that is inclusive and fair and genuinely gives everyone opportunity uh, and does not have the kinds of structural biases, this project will take forever. Don't think it's not going to get done in a day or a week yeah. or a year. Yeah. And there have been and are uh, many successes, uh, many, many. Uh, and today, if you're starting a uh, gap-closing tech startup, there are many more funding opportunities, certainly at the pre-seed and seed stage, less so a little further you know, down the road. But there's more infrastructure and more support for that. Is it like a majority? Have we changed the thinking of the investment world as a whole? No, not yet. Long, but but it's it's 
that's okay. You just, you, you keep at it and you, you know, and this moment of pushback, there've been other moments of pushback and we have to not be faint of heart, not give up, not concede and continue to be creative. Yeah, it's funny. yeah. find ways to, find ways to do what we do. Yeah, Mitch, that's great. Sorry about that interruption, but I would just add that yeah. um, I'm seeing a lot of examples of things improving um, across college campuses, uh -huh. uh, across other places of learning. Um, and with that, I know you're um, paying attention to what's going on in the AI world as well, which yeah. seems to have taken every headline. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seems like there's, there's two um, views. One is the, uh, the fear and pessimism that it's going to create versus one, the complete, uh, um, disruption and transformation that it's going to enable. Where do you come out? And of course the answer could be both Mitch, but where do you come out on AI and as a technology, um, and how it will impact the landscape for the next, you know, generation? Yeah. So uh, in general, I'm dubious about extremists on either end. I think this is, you know, not heaven and not hell. Um, and, and, and I believe there's a lot of misplaced energy spent on arguments <laughs> between those parties and people making the case. That said, I think in a realistic way, there's both huge promise and and huge peril, but not like existential end of the world and not not utopia. Set those aside. But on the you know the peril side, if misused, if unregulated, people will put it to use for every bad purpose any human being has ever had. Uh, and I think that is something that pioneers in the internet days put up my hand. In hindsight, didn't pay as much attention to as uh, as they might. Um, and here we are and have another chance. And that's why I think putting up guardrails and preventing abuses and uh, trying to <laughs> wrestle with the very gnarly issues of regulation is is an imperative. And we could spend a whole series of podcasts on that and, and people do. But what I wanna shine shine a light on is there's also enormous uh, potential of, of AI for good. Uh, how do you employ these emerging technologies, whether it's in, you know, in health or, or in, in productivity tools or in, you know, uh, social media in, in ways that actually uh, enhance human interaction, uh, you know, provide uh, insights we otherwise uh, we wouldn't have. Uh, and so from a social impact gap closing investment perspective, I'm very optimistic that AI is already starting to fuel and be embedded in, you know, in the companies that we're seeing and investing in an existing portfolio company. So we shouldn't lose sight of that despite the fact that there's deep fake Joe Biden phishing scam, and we have to stop that, but don't throw the baby out with the bathroom. No, certainly, I, I get it. And I think cautious optimism is the rule, but it almost harkens back to your comment, like in the early internet days, hey, the race has started, now the yeah. 
legislation regulation needs to get, get caught up or close. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if I have much faith in our government to go figure that out, but we'll see how it happens. I, I think it is far better than the cynical average view in Silicon Valley and far less good than where it, it needs to be, but worth believing in and betting on and improving. And yeah. 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 Well, Mitch, I've taken a little bit over time and I want to respect your thing. Anything else you want to add or share? Oh, we've kind of covered the waterfront here at a at a rapid pace with a you know a fast hydrofoil. So I, I feel pretty good about that. Good. I like speed still. It's fun. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. run, but I can talk fast still. No, I think it's I think it's good. Well, thanks so much. And and I do want to say I uh, wish you tremendous success. And I'll share this with people. And if they want to get in touch with the Kapoor Center, uh, look it up. Oakland, California, and some phenomenal companies in that portfolio and doing. You know, really great, great stuff. So I really uh, sincerely wish you guys the best. Uh, much appreciated. And thank you for the opportunity to talk. All right. You take care. Our key. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback. And would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.